This week on the Writer's Detective Bureau, the real job of a forensic psychologist, psychological traits you can use to take your character creation to a deeper level, and misconceptions and differences between psychologists and psychiatrists. I'm Adam Richardson, and this is the Writer's Detective Bureau. Welcome to episode number 15 of the Writer's Detective Bureau, the podcast dedicated to helping authors and screenwriters write professional quality crime-related fiction. Recently, Joanna Penn was talking about Patreon on the Creative Pen podcast. She said, I think patronage is one of the most powerful things that you can do to support creators that you want to continue hearing from. It's one of those ways that you can support people and encourage them to do the things that are either useful to you or just putting good stuff in the world. Regardless of whether you support me on Patreon, I absolutely think you, as a creator of stories, should look into setting up your own Patreon account. You can learn more at writersdetective.com forward slash Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And thanks to my patrons, Joan Raymond, Guy Alton, Natasha Bajima, Natalie Borelli, Joe Trent, Siobhan Pope, Leah Cutter, and the most recent patron, Ryan Kinmill, for helping me keep the lights on in the Bureau. You can find links to their author websites in the show notes by going to writersdetective.com forward slash 15. This week, we're doing something a little bit different. You may recognize Dr. Vanessa Holtgrave's voice from recent episodes of Take Two Pills and Listen to This Podcast and the Sword and Scale Podcast. Dr. Holtgrave is a doctor of psychology, a professor of clinical and forensic psychology, a licensed clinical psychologist in the state of California, and our guest on the Writers Detective Bureau podcast this week. So without any further ado, let's get into the interview with Dr. Vanessa Holtgrave. What exactly do you do as a doctor of psychology and clinical forensic psychology clinical and forensic psychology so forensics if you think of forensic psychology like a tree um, there's several branches on that tree so you can work in police psychology or you can work in correctional psychology or you can work in the courts doing competency to stand trial evaluations or um, sanity evaluations um, or you can work in mental health treatment court there's a lot of different areas where you can work I think people think forensic psychology is profiling. I know we've talked about that. And it's something I hear all the time from my students in my classes is that is what they've wanted to do their whole lives. They want to go into forensic psychology, do profiling, and very few professionals are going into profiling. I would say a lot of the professionals I met in profiling are actually police. And then you might have a few psychologists, but they're highly trained in profiling as well. Um, so we're really working in anything that involves um, the justice system or law. So it's that intersection between mental health and law, um, where you are working in the courts or you're working in prison or jail, or you're working in police departments. And so there's just a variety of things that you can do in forensic psychology. Um, for myself specifically, I worked for probation and the sheriff's office. Um, but I did mental health evaluations for um, they were technically parolees. They were being released um, under the AB 109 program in California. And um, just getting them set up with services in the um, community that are paid for by probation and parole, um, mental health treatment services and things like that. 
So are you making recommendations then, mm-hmm. or what exactly is your role? When yeah, it comes to um, role? I think the psychologist is used as kind of the gatekeeper, um, really, to the psychiatrist as well. So there's a psychiatrist in the program. They're getting um, a full evaluation by the psychologist because that's our specialty. And they are getting a diagnosis. If the diagnosis is a qualifying diagnosis or it's applicable, then they're getting referred to the psychiatrist in the probation program. And then they're getting um, treatment there if they're choosing to do so. And they might get other recommendations like um, AA groups or substance use, or they might get referred to job services and, and things like that. So are you actually interviewing each parolee? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Any scary experiences? No, not really. I think um, the only time I ever get worried is if they tell me they don't feel well. <laughs> <laughs> What's the weirdest experience you've ever had? The weirdest experience I ever had was not uh, well, actually, I had a guy ask me for a therapy pet letter for his, and this was in a prison setting, too, so this isn't like, he wants a therapy pet letter in his home, um, but he wanted a therapy pet letter for his tarantula named um, Knuckles, was the tarantula, <laughs> and I said, well, who named him? And he said, uh, Dirty Steve named him who was also in the prison at that time. <laughs> and I said, no, I won't write you a therapy pet letter, but that was a good story. And um, we had another guy, he listed his dear dead Nana in heaven was the emergency contact, it, fully written out just like that. Mm. And that did he have like, a contact number? Um, he did not. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to know how to contact heaven, though. That would be great. So in what kind of scenarios have law enforcement officers asked for your help? Um, so in our department specifically, I was helping um, just a lot with the general threat assessment questions. We were working on trying to identify people that were at risk in the community um, for becoming involved with um, maybe mass violence or targeted violence. We have helped out on cases where there's potential school shooters, um, and it, it's it's not the same as if we're going and we're targeting community members, but it's more so this is a community member of concern. Do we bring in psychology or not? Um, they have teams all over California, I think the MAT teams, where they um, specifically assess that type of risk. So that's where you'll bring in psychologists just to look at um, what are the risk factors for violence? Um, what are some of the red flags that are going on with this person or these group of people? And then also we do civil commitments as well. So does this person meet criteria for a hospitalization in the state of California um, against their will? So we'll initiate those proceedings. So in the, whether it is in the clinical setting where you are talking to people trying to get released on parole or in where you're helping law enforcement with specific cases, what are the kind of the top diagnoses or at least traits that you've seen Mm -hmm. um, in the cases that you've come across? I think the top diagnosis really would be um, personality disorders. (laughs) I think the media really portrays schizophrenia as being this perpetrator in the justice system where anyone who's mental health involved in the justice system has some kind of psychotic disorder, and that's really rare. Uh, When you look at the the prevalence in the community, I want to say it's around 1%. Um, versus personality disorders are significantly higher, especially in the justice system. We have those 
you know, colloquially would be sociopathic traits or psychopathic traits. It's really antisocial personality disorder. I get a lot of guys who are in there um, lying, so we have some problems with malingering, and those are that's one of the things I assess for. But really in the justice system, we do see a lot of just personality disorders. Substance use disorders is another one. And then very rarely we'll get a person with a psychotic disorder. But it's really not to the level that it's portrayed in the media. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. So what, similar to that, mm-hmm. what psychological personality traits have you seen in the cops that you've worked with? <laughs> <laughs> I actually did my dissertation research on this. I don't know if you read it. But um, they... So from what I was seeing really was that it's really called type A personality, but we don't call it type A in our world in psychology. It's obsessive compulsive personality traits and very, and I think it, it really serves cops um, positively. It's that attention to detail, orderly and organized. I think if you really want to mess with a police officer, you'll hide the label maker or <laughs> mess up their desk a little bit. Um, but And it might be to have order in their lives in general because their lives are so chaotic. But also, um, you need a person who's has an attention to detail and who's good at report writing and has all of those qualities. And that makes them successful in their jobs as well. I previously made an analogy on this podcast that police departments can be like high school, or at least working in them can be like high school. Mm-hmm. So do you think that's accurate or am I full of crap? Oh, I think that's accurate. I laughed out loud when I heard that podcast episode. Um, and then I think I asked you, where did I fit in in that? Because I was kind of this wayward being that kind of just went from department to department, where sometimes I existed in the coroner's bureau, and sometimes I existed over with the detectives. And What was my response? I'm trying to remember what I said. Um, I think you called me a guidance counselor. That's yeah. right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So, but I don't know how much guidance I was really providing <laughs> to anyone. <laughs> yeah. But I would, I would definitely agree with that analogy. I think it's, especially the hierarchy too. And the same can be said for the military. When we covered talking about the um, traits for the cops, and, right. you know, like the attention to detail and that kind of thing, those are, those are the kind of things that are going to be really useful for writers when they're trying to flesh out a character and give cops traits. Obviously, not every cop has that, but Mm -hmm. like you said, the more successful you are, the more likely it is that has to be, that will be the case. So if if the writers are trying to craft antagonists that have that antisocial personality personality Mm -hmm. disorder, what kind of traits could they include in their description of the character or in the things that that character does that would be believable to make a reader kind of come to the conclusion that they have this diagnosis without literally having to say, this person was diagnosed with this Mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. So that's a good question. I think those individuals, and granted it's it's really a collection of symptoms, but they... um, have these core features of lying, for example, or um, vindictiveness, um, wanting revenge, uh, taking advantage of others, so that victimizing of others. They might have a history of um, crime, they might not. So there's that sociopath next door, right? Mm-hmm. Where you, they've never been justice involved. We look at um, Dennis Rader is a good example, the BTK mm-hmm. killer. And 
where they have these these core features where they're really victimizing others. So whether they're using superficial charm or not to get the means to an end, um, they're interacting with people in such a way where um, they're taking advantage of them. So for the um, individuals that I was involved with, they really do have a hard time telling the truth, even if it's something that's very minor. Um, so there's that manipulative component as well. It may or may not be sophisticated. Mm-hmm. It really just depends on the level of criminality that that person has. But the when I worked in the prison, these guys had multiple girlfriends, for example. And they might call one girlfriend and say, hey, I need you to bring me cigarettes. And call another girlfriend and say, hey, I need you to bring me whatever other item. And they don't know about each other. But... Um, this individual is using them as a means to an end. So it's not about building the relationship with the person. It's about how can this person benefit you in some way, not how you can benefit that person. So we do see a lot of manipulative behavior, and that does come out in criminal activity sometimes, sometimes not. Um, But what you would see is that kind of conning persona, I guess, where you have this central component of manipulativeness that when they're interacting with law enforcement, they might be believable. Um, But when you look into their history of how they are taking advantage of others and it looks selfish, right? It Mm -hmm. looks like it might be narcissism, right? It's on on the same spectrum of personality features, but um, really using others. So whether or not it's a female or a male, um, it's a lot more common in males. They, I had a female that um, I worked with who she pretended to be a lawyer and she took advantage of elderly people um, and who would end up foreclosing on their home and um, there's a lack of empathy involved. I don't feel bad that this couple lost their home. They shouldn't have trusted me in the first place. Um, so really just wanting to put on a persona that maybe isn't themselves. So it could be a lawyer could be something else in order to manipulate those people and, and have them believe you. So is there a common like point of view that they have like from their perspective of the world or of what leads them to this ultimately? Mm-hmm. I know not all of it is criminality, but as far as that manipulating and stuff, is there mm-hmm. like a, a, any kind of feeling persecuted or that it's their right to take what is mm-hmm. not theirs? So what? Is yeah, there anything like that you've seen? I see a lot of righteousness. Um, I think really when you're looking at that personality type, it's just that the world is unjust. I'm going to take what I want and I need because otherwise people will take it from me. I can see that definitely how it relates to like property crimes. Mm-hmm. Um, how about violent crime? Is there any kind of common, um, not necessarily diagnoses, but worldview, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, of the people that perpetuate the crimes that you've seen? It really depends on who they're um, targeting, I guess, as the victim. If it's somebody that they are related to or they're in a domestic partnership with, then I would say it's more of a power and control issue. If it's um, somebody in the community, it might just be that lack of concern for the other person's safety. You're in my way or you have something that I need or I want or you upset me and then that vindictiveness comes out too. One of the things I really saw was this um, sense of entitlement. Um, 
And then also feeling disrespected. If they felt disrespected, then you got whatever was coming to you. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So when you are doing your clinical interviews with these parolees that mm-hmm. may or may not be released, what is the setting? Are you going to them? Like, If you, if you could describe the scene, if you will, if you were a writer trying to paint the picture of this scene, what would it look like? So I, I worked uh, in the same building with officers. Um, it's a safety issue as well. We, we as mental health don't carry guns on us unless you work in a federal setting, but, uh, we're just generally unprotected. I think I've, I've never generally felt unsafe around offenders. I've worked in prison settings for a long time, um, in correctional settings, but I worked in the probation building. And so these, um, offenders and their clients on my end are being ushered in by law enforcement and they're brought to our office. Uh, law enforcement are right outside the door, and um, we have panic buttons that are issued to us. We've never used them or anything like that, but it is a, a more formal setting. They're not coming to our office. We're certainly not coming to their homes. Sure. Okay, so mm-hmm. they've already been released, typically? They have, okay. yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is not like a condition of release that they get a psychological assessment. No, they might get an assessment, but if that's the case, then they're getting it in jail. Okay. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Or they're getting it in prison. So it really just depends on how, if they're a post-sentence um, or pre-sentence. So yeah. is this typically like a condition of parole or probation that they meet with a mental health professional, or is this yeah. just a one-time thing? Um, it is under the, that program, that AB 109 program in the state of California. So if there is concern for mental health, say the individual has a history of mental illness or they claimed mental health issues while they were incarcerated, um, so they had that that category, um, then they would be screened as a precaution for probation when they get out to also make sure if the person needs um, medication or they need therapy, they need some kind of mental health resource. So if they have any kind of history at all, they're automatically getting screened by mental health. If they don't have a history but they're now reporting, like they can't go to... Um, the groups that they're mandated to go to because of social anxiety or uh, whatever other reason or they're being hostile in the group, then they'll also do a mental health referral. And then we also have individuals who will have acute symptoms that kind of pop up, like they are acting psychotic and they need to know, is it a substance use problem? Are they acutely intoxicated or is it a mental health problem that just was never recognized, which does happen. Um, a lot of the people that really need the most help are the ones that say, no, I'm not mentally ill. I don't, I don't need help. I don't know why I'm here. And then the ones that are really making a case for their mental illness to us are the ones that have some sort of Um, ulterior motive or external gain that we're looking at because they're putting such an effort into wanting to be perceived as mentally ill and that's just not um, bona fide. We don't see that in in real patients. What what kind of so going along those lines, what kind of telltale signs are there that the person's making something up? Well, that's a great question. Well, first of all, it's making a case that you're mentally ill, <laughs> putting in quite an effort to to prove your case that you have a mental illness. They'll almost always choose a mental illness that's sensationalized, like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. But there's still a real lack of understanding of what that looks like in a real person 
in the population. And so the symptoms that are reported uh, aren't bona fide. They, they're symptom combinations that would never go together, or it's a frequency of symptoms that we would never see, or a severity of symptoms that's really unusual. And unbeknownst to them, well, we work with people who are actually mentally ill every day. So we do know what it looks like. And um, usually if you've done enough assessments and you're able to work with a diverse population of people with mental illnesses, you're able to catch on pretty quickly whether or not that person's um, feigning their symptoms. I've I've worked a homicide case where Mm -hmm. it was pretty apparent that our suspect was going to faint feign amnesia oh, mm-hmm. where, to the point where I was filling out the booking paperwork in the interview room after the interview and I asked him if he had any scars, marks, or tattoos and he pretended like he'd, he'd forgotten what the word tattoo meant. And <laughs> I'm like, I don't think that's how amnesia works. I don't know what that means. Like, a tattoo. I don't know what that means. A permanent ink injected into your... I'm sorry, I don't understand you. It was, it was quite bizarre, but it was great because it was actually on tape. Oh yeah, we have tests of memory malingering that even people with dementia and neurocognitive disorders would pass just based on chance and they um, they have such a score that, that would never even occur just by guessing based on chance um, and so that's usually an indicator as well intentional I, fail I, the intentional fail right and especially in, in law enforcement there's that now I all of a sudden have amnesia um, or I can't remember where it was and especially when you're looking at uh, just a regular person in the community like myself if you or another law enforcement officer were to ask me, what did I do two days ago? I probably wouldn't be able to recall it because it's unremarkable to me. And would that look like um, I'm guilty because I can't remember? Maybe, but it also could be that I really don't remember because it wasn't a remarkable day. Now, if it was something significant, like a person I know disappeared, I would remember what happened that day because something remarkable happened that day. I think one of the funniest cases I think of that feigned amnesia really was the Philip Markoff case, the Craigslist killer. Mm. If you listen to his whole audio um, and, or read the transcript from his interview, he just cannot remember anything. They're like, have you gone to the Cheesecake Factory? And he's like, I don't know, maybe never. And they're like, we have video of you going there. And he's like, I might have walked through there. And... Um, everything is, I don't know, or I don't remember. And of course that, that certainly looks suspicious. Certainly. Another thing to add for psychologists, forensic psychologists, not just for profiling, but really, um, the misrepresentation of us in, in television and movies is that, or even literature is that we prescribe medications or they'll often confuse psychiatrists with with psychologists where they're doing extensive therapy or they're doing testing and that's not the case. So for psychologists, we're doing the testing, we're doing um, assessments of competency or malingering or any other forensic tests of that matter. And that's not being um, executed by psychiatrists in any way. And um, we don't prescribe medications. Um, Well, in in a select few states we can, (laughs) but not the state of California. And so it's really that misrepresentation of of our professions, the two combined professions as well, and um, that that I see the most in movies, I think. And just for the listeners, what's your what is the definition of malingering? Malingering is a legal term. Um, it's intentional feigned symptoms with the purpose of an external gain. 
So if there's no external gain, um, it would be more of like a fictitious disorder is what we call it. We don't have anything obvious that the person's trying to gain other than maybe something internal. So externally, it might be to evade a charge or um, overall responsibility for that matter if you're going for insanity. Um, it might be to lessen a charge. It might be to gain some sort of monetary, like um, social security is one of the things I see the most, which is frustrating. And um, But it has to be an external gain, whether it's legal, whether it's money, whether it's, um, you know, changing what a person thinks about you. It has to be external. And that is the reason why they're feigning symptoms. So... Um, one of the things I saw when I worked in juvenile hall was we had a kid who was um, up for charges and he had an added gang enhancement as well. And he all of a sudden started feigning both psychotic symptoms and cognitive symptoms where I think he forgot he had taken um, <laughs> neuropsychiatric testing in the past. And he had a, we already had a previous IQ score for him and he just bombed the IQ test. And we're like, did you get a head injury? You know, what would be causing this? And he said, no, but I I got my appendix out. And ever since then, I've heard things and seen things and I can't remember anything. And I don't know how to tie my shoes and um, highly unlikely. But also at that same time was when he was facing those charges. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The appendix is not a very big appendix. I know. I said, you know, I got my appendix out. Thank God I didn't become psychotic or lose my memory from that. (laughs) That appendectomy, lobotomy uh, combo. (laughs) Thank you for listening to episode 15 of the Writer's Detective Bureau with our special guest, Dr. Vanessa Holtgrave. If you have questions for Dr. Holtgrave, send them in through the form you'll find at writersdetective.com forward slash podcast, and I'll make sure to get them answered for you on an upcoming episode. Thanks again for listening, and write well. podcast blah, 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 blah. <laughs> that's going in the blooper yeah i do that all the time <laughs> blooper reels are the best part of any podcast